Hello and welcome to Consumer Choice Radio, yet another fun episode. I have one half of your co-host, Yael Osowski, broadcasting to you from Vienna, Austria, and we are live here on The Big Talker, 106.7 FM in the morning in Wilmington, North Carolina, every Saturday at 10, and I'm joined as always by my trusty colleague, David Clement in Toronto. David, sir, hello. Hello. It has been... Um... To say that 2020 has been awful would be an understatement, and I think the last week of everything that has gone on really underscores just how terrible 2020 has been. Um, People protesting, um, in my opinion, rightfully protesting um, in, in protest of what happened to George Floyd, um, some of those genuine voices and protests being um, being overshadowed by people who are rioting and looting and destroying property and things like that, which is obviously quite negative. We have all of the shenanigans that have gone on with Trump uh, and the White House and Twitter censoring his tweet about shooting looters. Um, so to say it has been an eventful week would be an understatement. Um, I know that we do have two very good interviews um, this week, two very good interviews, very much in line um, and in respect with what has gone on this week and kind of the the global discussion of uh, criminal justice reform, of racism in the United States and abroad, how we answer these these um how we answer the challenge of, of some of these um, topics, how we move forward, how we heal. So I'm very excited um, for this week's show, although it's obviously um, not a very uh, exciting or happy theme in which we're... It's like a, it's a somber note, somber yes, time. A very somber, somber time. Yeah, and I think uh, for... Many of the listeners here, you know, they definitely will have heard much about this on the radio or TV or seen plenty online. So I, I don't think it, uh, it behooves us to continue on and to give uh, yet another breakdown of exactly what happened. I mean, there, there's so many things that have occurred. There's a lot of uh, people who have been out in the streets. Uh, definitely there's a lot of destruction. Definitely there's a lot of people who believe there's been a lot of miscarriages of justice. And uh, nobody's wearing a mask. Nobody's social distancing. What's up with that? <laughs> That's a very good point. That's a very good point. Yeah, there's been a lot and, of commentary on that. And just to jump on the front, and, and this is a North Carolina-specific rant, uh, one thing that is in the news before we, we get into our interviews, that which I know we want to play, uh, the governor of North Carolina, Roy Cooper, um, has basically uh, made it impossible for the RNC, the Republican National Convention, to take place here in Charlotte. Um, in, in North Carolina. And essentially he said that would not happen because you're not allowed to have more than 50 people in a room. And uh, he doesn't believe the RNC can secure everyone's safety and they can't make it clean. This is the same guy who's now walking around at protests, telling everyone it's awesome that they're out protesting. It's great. He's encouraging it. He says that we need to have more protests, more people who are out in the streets. I mean, come on, man. Be consistent. There's so much cognitive dissonance right now. It's it's insane. And there's a lot of feelings that a lot of us are feeling, and we don't know what to think or what to feel, and we're being confronted with a lot. But 
at least we know the governor has no clue <laughs> how to carry forward. Yeah, at least at least apply things in a consistent manner, or at least talk about how, of course, everybody has a right to protest, and you can be on, you can agree with the protesters as I do, um, while at the same time maybe reflecting and thinking you were a little too harsh on on people just a week ago. Yeah, the people who were doing their own protest against the lockdown measures. Yeah. Now, that isn't to equate the two. Um, I certainly wouldn't equate the two. But we have governors all over the United States who kind of snickered and laughed and and in many instances fined and even arrested uh, or attempted to arrest people for protesting the lockdown, depending on what they were doing. And... uh, on the flip side, encouraging ma- essentially mass gatherings um, now. And so it really does beg for some consistency. Um, that's that's something that would be appreciated in this instance. Yeah, and I think uh, earlier you you know talked about how it is a, a very heavy week. And I think we're going to do something special here on the program, uh, David and I, for all of you listening. Uh, we conducted two separate interviews that cover different strata of different social justice issues. Some of this is very related to a lot of the stuff that we're doing every day. Sometimes it's not, uh, but we think these are important ideas and this is an important platform and it, it's the perfect time to, to think about these ideas, to discuss these ideas. I think there is a lot that's going to be happening in the next couple of weeks, couple of months, and we want to be sure we contribute to that. We do want to hear your feedback as well. So if uh, you like the interviews that we'll be conducting today, uh, be sure to go over to ConsumerChoiceRadio.com. Continue to subscribe and rate us and uh, write in your comments, and and we'll see if we can continue the conversation. There's a lot more to go on. Uh, I guess we're going to start with uh, clip number one interview. David, you conducted this interview, so we'll hand it over to you. Yes. uh, Yeah, very excited to have Rupert Bonham on the show for anybody who watched the reality TV show Survivor. Uh, Rupert is uh, arguably one of the most famous people to ever play the game. He's been in it four times. Um, if you if you watched Survivor and you're a fan like I am, you certainly know who he is. And we had a great conversation about um, his role in politics, some things maybe people don't know about him, uh, the work he's doing post-Survivor, which is very much focused on criminal justice reform focused on helping those who were formerly incarcerated. Um, Certainly a friend of the show. I hope to have him back uh, on in the future. Uh, Just an all-around great guy. So we will uh, we'll have Jamie play that clip here and uh, get rolling into our interview with Rupert Bowen. All right, we are very excited to have our next guest join the program. Uh, He has played Survivor an amazing four times, uh, being voted one of America's favorite players. He competed on The Amazing Race. He was a candidate for governor in 2012, and he is the founder of Rupert's Kids, which is a charity for at-risk teens. Welcome to the program, Rupert Bonham. Oh, thank you, David. How are you doing? 
I'm doing all right. I'm doing all right. I hope you're holding up well uh, with all of the craziness and lockdowns. And uh, doing good. Okay, good, good. Yes, um, yes, doing good. So, getting right to it, how? I mean, Survivor is obviously where a lot of people know you from. Right. What was the process of coming home from Survivor, going on again, coming home, the people starting to recognize you in public? I'm sure that must have been. Um, maybe strange just to go from someone who wasn't recognized to someone who millions of Americans um, could, could recognize you and know you by name on the street. You know, going from someone, you know, that hairy, scary, you know, kind of tough looking guy uh, that people were a little afraid of, you know, I would notice people would walk to the other side of the road to avoid me going from that to, you know, everybody, it seemed like everybody out there knowing who I was, knowing, you know, it was, gosh, 17 years ago, seems like just the other day, you know, I went out on Pearl Islands and got to go be the pirate and steal everybody's shoes and <laughs> have a really cool adventure. Yep. And then three days after I got home, CBS calls me back and says, you want to do it again? <laughs> I had so many shoulda, coulda, wouldas, I jumped at the chance. I remember looking at my wife and daughter who I had just told, I am never leaving a game, That never leaving again, that darn game. They misnamed the game. I said it shouldn't be called Survivor, it should be called Conniver. You know, <laughs> the best liar yeah. wins the darn game, not the best Survivor. Oh, that's After good. Three days, you know, they call me back. They say, You want to play the game again? <laughs> yeah, I want to play the game again. And got to go out and be the first one to do back to back Survivor. By the time I came back after that second one, my body was so beat. My family and I went down to Florida and we all sat on a beach for weeks while I, you know, reacclimated myself into society because. It is, it is a tough game, body, mind, and soul. It is tough. And so you touched on, like, it was immediate for you to want to go back. And I think that that taps into some of the popularity of the game. Why do you think that Americans are so captured by a game like Survivor? I mean, a lot of people, I, I mean, we've had this conversation before, you know that I'm a, a big fan of Survivor, so I watched all of those seasons and I still do oh, yes. with my wife. Um, but what is it that captures American consumers? What is it that, that brings them into that kind of Survivor family and makes television like this so attractive and popular? You know, back in the day, back in 2003, when I went in the first, my first game, but it was season seven, it was the adventure, the cool, you know, shots that you would get. The end was the, the island was as much the game. And then the battle inside yourself. You know, you would watch people, I dropped 50 pounds in 27 days. I dropped 65 pounds in 37 days, and there were only weeks in between the game. Oof. The battle inside yourself, that battle out in the environment, that, that contest, whether you could make it or not, really, back, that's when they had 30 million-plus viewers watching the show. 
You know, they still got 10, 12 million viewers watching, but it's not as tough a game anymore. Now it's more the game of, you know, who could be the best conniver, who can mm -hmm. find the idol, who can, you know, and I still love the game. I would play it again in a second, but I would like to see him go back to the old way of, you know, clothes on your back, out in the game. If you can't find it, if you can't make it, if you can't create it, you don't get it. Yeah. You know, watching yep. people struggle. That that inner struggle is a really neat thing to watch. And, you know, I hate to say it, but watching people, you know, uh, slowly losing weight and slowly starving and slowly <laughs> going crazy, it's kind of fun to watch. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, that's good. Oh, that's good. Uh, so on that note, I mean, you played four times. You're obviously uh, maybe a bit of a glutton for punishment in that <laughs> sense. What what drove you to run for governor? Because, uh, I mean, for those who don't know, you ran for governor as a libertarian right. in, in Indiana, uh, right. which was at the time against against uh, now Vice President Mike Pence. Yes. What, what What drove you to enter the world of politics uh, what were the issues that you were passionate about at the time? And what was that process like going from obviously having uh, some fame from Survivor, but then going right into the nitty gritty. It's very, right. very Survivor-esque for those who are uh, maybe not that positive about politics. But yeah, what right. was that like? Especially a statewide race where, you know, I'm going up the Dem the Democrats and the Republicans that have, 18 and 21 million dollars in their pocket and my little 75,000 was you know a drop in the bucket. I didn't even have enough money to buy enough yard signs to put through the state, let alone any media ads or anything. Mm -hmm. But you know the one of the best things that I have still that I use in my mentoring program, going back and looking at the 2012 gubernatorial debates and watching Mike Pence, not answer any questions, just talk, 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 and never say anything. John Gregg, maybe answering a question or two, but still not really saying anything. And me actually answering questions. Me standing mm -hmm. up showing how our detention centers in Indiana, we at that time in 2012 spent, you know, 1.1, 1.2 billion dollars just walking our children ourselves our parents up in indiana mm -hmm. our budget was only 16 billion dollars and we spend you know 1.2 billion on locking our people up creating more problems not creating the re-entry programs not creating the rehabilitation or the vocational training but genuinely creating career criminals creating more problems you know, I stood up in the gubernatorial race and said, 20, 30 years ago, we didn't have our children shooting us. Now we do. You start trying to beat people into submission. You make it more of a police state. I mean, right now is a prime example when we have some of our leaders standing up saying, you know, we need to as soon as the, you know, the looting starts, you know, I hate to repeat that. You know, yeah, the I was the shooting stuff. That disgusting things like that, creating more animosity, divisiveness, and and anger. Or some of the leaders standing up, 
-hmm. with the protesters uh, actually listening, taking yep. off their riot gear, holding, extending a handout, marching with people saying, yes, we are actually citizens of this community also, and we don't like the violence either. Yep, we're you on know? the same team. Right. Being able to stand up in 2012 and run on a platform of bringing back a true reentry program and saving hundreds of millions of dollars in the detention center, mm -hmm. bringing back empowerment programs into our entitlements that instead of, as Mike Pence in one of the uh, debates said, when the lady, the single mom came up and said, I'm a single mother, I'm going to school, I'm on the entitlement programs, but I made too much money and they were pulled overnight. What will you do for me? And Mike's answer, I'm gonna put that deadbeat father in jail. <laughs> what does that do? Creates more problems. You know, the Democrats said, oh, we're gonna, we're gonna help, we're gonna help, blah, 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 blah. I stood up and said, I wanna create a program that empowers Instead of creating a program that it, it holds your hand up and gives you money every week, every month with no stipulations, I could give you a million dollars and after the million dollars is gone, you're gonna ask where's my next payment. Mm -hmm. I could make, they take that million dollars and, and, and help 10 people with $100,000 saying you have to help yourself. I'm going to show you how you're going to get some education in, you know, Ivy Tech and career in cosmetology and trades mm -hmm. in something. I'm going to pay for it. I'm going to transport you to it. And I'm going to empower you to take care of yourself. Yep. One of the reasons why our mentoring program works so well, we take no government dollars. We get no city, state, federal funding. But our results match or beat any other program out there because we don't value the dollar over the lives, we value the lives. We and so, give of ourselves and create those programs that actually empower. We can't beat people into submission, but we can empower them to help us all. I totally, totally agree. And, and on that note, can you walk our listeners through what a program like that actually looks like what it's yes. like the reality for someone who is maybe coming out of uh, of an institution and being incarcerated and the toll that that takes and the the services that your program provides and what the end looks like and what's what's what does success look like you know it's a, it's amazing how many people out in the community community do not realize the problems that these men and women walking out of the detention center are walking out with. You know, when you're let out with an electronic monitor on your leg where you're on house arrest, you pay $15 a day for that, whether you've ever made a legal dollar in your life or not, you're on the hook the day you walk out, $105 a week. You pay $20 every time I make you pee in a cup. You pay $50 for that administration of that electronic monitoring. The first day you walk out of jail, you're saddled with debt for your freedom. 
Also, you're walking out with the scarlet letter of a felony stamped on your forehead, maybe two or three or four times. Also, you're walking out with uh, a pitiful work history, life history, credit history. Any employer out there that does a background check on you is going to, you know, every red flag in the world comes up. We create a scenario that as they're walking out the door, you will have people saying, I'll see you next week, I'll see you next month, good luck, because they know they're coming back. We've created a revolving door system. That's why the system has to keep building more jails, has to keep building more, more facilities. Instead of lessening the problem, we're increasing it. Now, as people are walking out of the detention center, if they have a safe place to live that is drug and alcohol free and gives them an empowerment for themselves that says you can make it, it's amazing how many people do. We have created in Rupert's Kids our warehouse, W-H-E-R-E, where are you going? Where have you been? Where do you wanna be? And it created this warehouse that is an empowerment program as you walk out of the detention center, whether you've got a dollar or not, you can walk into our program and start working that day with us, with me, our mentors side by side, mm-hmm. earning your rent, earning your money for your sundries, earning your money to pay your restitution, your child mm-hmm. support, your anklet fees, your tracker fees, your... If you can create a scenario where somebody can walk out of the detention center and have safe legal living, have a way to make legal dollars, and be surrounded by supportive individuals, you've got a great chance of making it. If you do what the system is doing right now and turn them loose in the middle of the night with the only other people around are the ones that you don't want them around, um, with not a penny in their pocket, with a little clear plastic bag, that doesn't even have an ID in it because they take all your IDs. Mm-hmm. You have not a dollar in your pocket. Where do you think you're gonna go? When you don't know how to take care of yourself, you go back to what you know. And unfortunately, what you know is what got them there in the first place. Of course. We so, need to be able to help people get themselves back on track. And so why, in your mind, why has the system become so cruel and left so many Americans behind. And I mean, this is obviously really important given what's going on in major US cities and people genuinely protesting serious um, instances of of police brutality and the way in which African Americans are treated in the United States. Where where did the US system go wrong and how can how can we fix it? What can be done so that we can actually have some of that healing um, that you so passionately work on in Indiana? How can we have that? How can we get there? Um, you know, a lot of people will say it's going to take a total restructuring of everything. What I honestly believe is that we need to start looking at just the policies we've created over the last 50 years, 100 years. When you create a war on drugs, a war on crime, a war on poverty, a war on us, fought in our own yards against our own people. The only victims are us. The war on drugs, the war on crime, the war on poverty, the war on has cost us billions and billions of dollars and has not helped 
the problem at all. We cannot create a war and beat people into submission, beat problems down. It does not work. We've tried for thousands of years. Hopefully we are getting to a point where we understand having empathy, compassion, understanding, creating uh, programs that empower us all, uh, looking at, you know, policies that different administrations have created. I hope everyone out there understands that red line scenario where we dominated a whole culture, a whole race of people, and would not let them move out to try and increase their wealth. So many of our families have grown, built, and increased our wealth with our properties. Over the generations, properties have been passed down and properties have created wealth. When you have the African-American community that has been separated from that for a hundred years, uh, there's one. When you have a system that empowers the people with money, and penalizes the ones without. You have a jail cell full of the poor and the uneducated. When you have uh, 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 prosecutors, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, pro county prosecutors that are willing to put everyone in jail to show mm -hmm. how we are keeping society safe. When I stood up in my campaign in 2012 and said, we need to start looking at the people we have in jail. Half our population in prison is in there because of consensual adult sex and marijuana. Yep. Now, both of those, we if we just eliminated those, stopped doing the sting operations trying to catch Johns, stopped worrying so much about trying to catch the poor little pot smoker that is doing nothing, mm -hmm. and start focusing more on the violent crimes, we could cut our detention centers in half. Like I say, Indiana spends a trillion, a billion dollars a year, more. How about we cut that in half? My own team would say I'm sounding soft on crime and I would have to fight that. We have been lulled into a false sense of security with our darn Patriot Act, with our darn entitlement of our government, with our passing of laws saying they're keeping us safe. At the same time, they're keeping the thumb on top of us, honestly. Yep. And it does not work. We have to believe in, honestly, what we used to. Back in the 70s and 80s, our detention centers did not cost us billions of dollars. Our criminals did not turn into career criminals. They served their time, they learned new ways of taking care of themselves, and they went back into society. You mm -hmm. paid your debt to society. I can still remember when I ran in, in the gubernatorial debates and I pulled out, I got in trouble for it, pulled out the Indiana Constitution, uh, you weren't supposed to have props in the debates. Yep. <laughs> I, I forgot. And said, I read it all the time. And in this, it says, punishment should match the crime. Mm -hmm. A lifetime of punishment does not match most crimes that are committed out there.
No, and yeah, you 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 see the proliferation of the overcriminalization of everything, whether it's the war on right. drugs, victimless crimes, sex work, all all of that. Right. All right, so in wrapping up, um, you obviously have this great program. Where can people learn more about what right. you're doing? How they can support it? You know, David, in in January of this year, we cut our ribbon for our warehouse, like I say, W-H-T-R-E. I am that old school that back in the 80s, in the 90s, 2000s, even now, I'm watching our society warehouse people and just see them as a dollar value. And the privatization of our prison is killing us, all of that. But I want to say, when we opened our doors on January 8th, cut that ribbon and moved our first few participants in by the 10th of January, a month later, we started seeing the coronavirus coming out. Uh, two months later, we were in lockdown. The donations have stopped. The, the support has stopped. The, but the need has not, you know? And we are showing how uh, in Rupert's Kids and with our warehouse that a true reentry program can work even without government dollars. But it does take some community support. You've got to check us out on Facebook and Instagram. Um, I know Facebook is is just Rupert's kids. So is, so is Instagram. And so is Instagram. I have to say, I'm a little computer illiterate. I still get on, you know, uh, <laughs> other people's. I'm not even on my phone because I don't have, uh, what is this, Zoom on the yeah. phone. <laughs> Go to Rupert's kids, please. Hit that donate button. See mm -hmm. some of these videos we're doing. See what we're showing. Like I say, our numbers beat everyone out there i have our address our phone number online come show up walk in see what we're doing yep. right now here the next in in a few minutes i've got a young lady coming in that wants to get our template to create a group home in her community great i'm more than willing to give it away come check us out great Rupert's kids hit that donate button well, thank you very much, Rupert. I encourage all of our listeners to check that out and support uh, your organization if they can. Um, it's been a pleasure having you on the show. We will definitely have you back. And uh, hopefully we can do an update in a few months' time on how things are going and how the warehouse is developing and how the program is going. So um, you'll definitely hear from us, and I know that our listeners will want to hear from you. So thank you. Great, great. Anytime you want, you come on out. Wow, David, that was awesome. That was a really wide-ranging interview going from <laughs> covering a lot of topics. I think stuff that's really important. And, uh, you know, to top it off, he's got a charitable foundation that's that's actually putting these ideas into practice. So that's pretty awesome. Yeah, and I think, I mean, for me, that's one of the biggest things. Um, so I've known, I've, I've had the pleasure of knowing Rupert for a few years now. Uh, but that's one of the things that I really admire is that he isn't just someone who is passionate about talking, uh, is passionate about talking about an issue. He's someone who is day after day actually working with people to ensure that they do not end up back in prison working to try and change the laws that put people in prison when they shouldn't be. Um, and he's really kind of, for lack of a better word, lack of a better phrase, put his money where his mouth is. And so 
Um, all the respect for him and his organization. And uh, yeah, a, a great interview. Um, and uh, it leads up perfectly to, to the guests that you interviewed. Um, a topic that's obviously uh, pressing, given the conversations that are going on uh, surrounding uh, systemic racism and, and, and the, the fabric of the United States. So I'll let you uh, lead into the interview that you conducted. So, yeah, this, this might be a little more controversial than our first one, um, more so because of the ideas and uh, the debate around it. So the, the next interview is conducted with my friend Alan Holmes. Uh, he's based in Atlanta. He is actually a senior aide to a, a city council member there, and he's a politico of all stripes. He's been in D.C., he's been in Atlanta, he's been up in Ohio, um, someone who understands the political process and who I've been following the last several months in, in hopes of understanding more about the movement to offer reparations to former enslaved persons in the United States, specifically those from the African continent. And this is coming up more and more in common parlance and in, in common discussion. Uh, it was mentioned ever so briefly in the 1619 project of the New York Times, mm -hmm. which we've invoked in the past. And it was great to sit down with Alan. We had a pretty long um, interview covering sort of the history of the idea of reparations, where this kind of came from, and sort of what is the modern iteration, what is the modern movement. So there's a lot of context that I didn't know. There's a lot of ideas that I certainly don't know about. Mm -hmm. It's a really interesting idea. I think it's something that we'll hear a lot more about, and uh, you can say that you heard it first. Consumer Choice Radio. So here's our interview with Alan Holmes. Uh, we'll go ahead and roll that clip, Jamie. Yeah. The New York Times. Extra, extra, read all about it. You can win anywhere if you can win here. And you ain't been nowhere if you ain't been here. Well, so hard, yeah, really. And welcome back to Consumer Choice Radio on the Big Talker 106.7 FM. I'm very delighted now to have my friend and former colleague Alan Holmes on the line. Alan Holmes is currently the senior advisor to Atlanta City Councilman Dustin Hillis. He's a partner at Roadmap Advisors. And over the last six years, he has assisted many state and local candidates with web development, copywriting strategy, Facebook ad campaign management, and knows everything about the world of campaign advertising. Alan, thanks so much for taking the time. Listen, yeah, I'm glad to uh, to be on the show and talk to the audience, man. Um, amid the challenging times we have, I'm glad to sit down and talk with you. Yeah, and I know you, you've had a lot of other appearances uh, lately, and I know we've spoken in the past and collaborated in other projects, so uh, cool to get you on the line. And yeah, man, I you are one of the best uh, follows that I have on Twitter for a lot of stuff that's happening, not only for bringing up news, but actually throwing up some analysis. Uh, so your Twitter account is O underscore Holmes, H-O-L-M-E-S. So you guys can go and follow his account there. And I wanted to get you on the program to talk about a number of things. Um, obviously, there's uh, stuff, plenty of stuff that's happening in the news right now. Uh, but one thing that I know you've you've been really investigating is looking at numbers and plans of certain uh, presidential candidates and trying to be very critical of them and doing a lot of research. Yeah. And I think that's been great. So kind of what have you learned um, from the current field of, of uh, I guess now our, our nominees? I, I think the nominating contests are pretty much over, but kind of what are your initial thoughts about plans and ideas and uh, really how they're, they're going to put these in order? 
Yeah, so I mean, I, I had a chance to look at the Lift Every Voice plan by Joe Biden. Biggest things, my takeaway is that, you know, it seemed that his policy team had not read From Here to Equality, which is a book by Duke Professor Sandy Darity, which delves into the history of the racial wealth gap, slavery, the violence, everything that preceded slavery that robbed individuals of wealth. He doesn't have that context and his team doesn't have that context and understanding because it's not in the plan. They address criminal justice reform, small business aid, um, issues with schools. They address that, but what they don't touch is the reparations, which would be the cash payment to descendants of slaves um, to, 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 to make up for the injustices that have happened, the debt that was never paid. And so because of that, and 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 you know, forgiving student loans. So it's it's definitely not enough on its own. Reparations in addition to the Lift Every Voice plan would be perfect. But you cannot ignore the reparations because the gap is so wide now, a lot of people don't understand that there's no way to catch up um, without that cash payment component to it, which could be split between the federal government as well as major universities and major companies in America that benefited directly from slavery. I'm all for a public-private partnership, but again, that's not what Joe Biden is offering. And uh, so, the plan that you're discussing, we'll link to that obviously in the show notes. And um, yes. I believe you linked to that in your Twitter profile. Um, running the numbers on closing the racial wealth gap by William Darity Jr., uh, who's a professor yes. at Duke, um, also yes. North Carolina boys. Um, and in this, it kind of breaks down the number median wealth distribution and uh, mean wealth distribution, white, black, Latinx. Oh, boy, Latinx. <laughs> um, yeah, between the different ones. And uh, it seems like, the, you know, there's the absolute difference and people can do the math. You know, there's a, a lot of people who might be listening to the program who aren't familiar with the idea of, of reparations, who have yeah. really heard about it. Maybe they've heard about it through some of the Democratic presidential plans, uh, but what is the idea of, of reparations? You, you mentioned it before about a debt paid. Yeah. What is the history? What does it go back to? And you know, what does this look like in kind of today's um, political arena? Yeah, I think to, to 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 get into the history of reparations briefly, I guess I would say that you know after the Civil War, um, you know, right after the Civil War, you know, eighteen sixties to eighteen seventies, um, many radical Republicans at the time, which would be considered um, liberal Democrats now push for reparations. Um, and they pushed for freed men to receive confiscated Confederate land after the Civil War. So the idea has been pushed. Um, the irony of it, what a lot of people don't know between Frederick Douglass's connection to reparations is that these radical Republicans were pitching Frederick Douglass, who was obviously a famous African-American civil rights leader at the time on backing the deal. And he actually because he thought that slaves want to do agricultural work, even though they got had their own land because of slavery and also felt like because of the nature of slavery, a, a free slave wouldn't be able to be self-reliant and thrive on free land. He never backed it. The plan died. And later on, 10, 15 years later, he regretted that to the day he died because he realized how impoverished 
the newly freed slaves were who became free with nothing. So continued to push actually on reparation, but at that point it was too late. And, and uh, so yeah, there's one plan. Um, this is a special field order 15. Um, this yes. was mentioned in the 1619 project a bit. Uh, the military orders that were issued um, during the American Civil War, apparently with Sherman's March, which we've all read about in school and everything. And, and while this was happening, there were enslaved people who were able to leave plantations and kind of were following along um, with Sherman's March. And then there, there was a military order of confiscating the Confederate land and then um, sort of doling that out and parceling out to the people who had been on the march specifically and then broader to the new freemen. And it seems like Andrew uh, Johnson, the new president, um, apparently had like canceled all that and was not in. And I think a lot of it uh, probably stemmed from Abraham, uh, Abraham Lincoln's assassination, a lot of stuff not being carried out. And uh, it's, it's really interesting because the 1619 Project from the New York Times talked about a little bit. There's been some podcast. Um, they didn't really go too deep into reparations, but it is interesting that that's sort of the beginning story of with the plans that were, you know, put in place just right around that time. Yeah, and and I mean, I think that kind of to go on from how it originated, you know, when reading Sandy Derry's book, he goes into time and time again, and other people have discussed this time and time again, when reparations have been promised in some form and then pulled back. President Herbert Hoover, when he was running for president back in the day, had an alignment, a political alignment and relationship with the president of Tuskegee University at the time, uh, which is a historically black college in Tuskegee, Alabama. He got the president's support and endorsement, which helped Herbert Hoover. And Herbert Hoover actually promised then the president of Tuskegee that he would work on giving African Americans land that many former Confederates or their heirs had lost in bankruptcy to people in the South. When Herbert Hoover was elected president, he went back on that offer, hmm. which then led that president of Tuskegee University at the time to then subsequently endorse Franklin Delano Roosevelt during the re-election of Herbert Hoover. Wow. Okay, so, I didn't know that part. Yeah, so this is in the and so that is the issue of where we are now and how present day reparations would look. I think it would look like it would look like the lift lift every voice plan in addition to what we have seen with our emergency coronavirus checks, which again, this is a good use for reparations, which means just about every American, give or take, or many Americans receive twelve hundred dollars deposited in their bank account as cash from the federal government. So even though some people still haven't been paid and it's sad, many people have. So this is showing that the federal government can make deposits to a huge, large amount of people payment. So this is, this is saying that it can be done. And I think that what our elected officials need to push for is for the study to occur, HR 40, but then there'd be a timeline for a bill to be voted on up or down. Because, I, you know, I'm in politics, understand that um, how things go. I understand that it would be highly unlikely that it would ever pass the House or the Senate, even under Democratic control. So, I, but I, we need to see someone institute or introduce the legislation. And I want to see how people vote 
because we need to understand who our allies are, even on the Democratic end. We would know that all the Republicans would vote against it. But which Democrats would vote against it? Because I thought we're all pushing for equality here. So we need to understand which Democrats would be against it. Some would, would when it comes to righting the wrong and actually giving a return on investment to the constituents who continue to support the Democratic Party. We need results. So we, we need to know who would support and who would oppose it. So that's what I want to push for and I want to see it happen. Yeah, and um, I, I think you, you, you do give a very good breakdown often on um, at least your Twitter account of you know, various plans and have people have talked about it a little bit and kind of dithered and haven't really uh, gone all in. And I think your yeah. your wording is right. It's a debt paid, and yeah, um, it is. I think for a lot of people, you know, this is a Southern radio station, but I, I think it's you know, people in the South can understand that even more. Um, so I'm an, I'm an immigrant to the South. My my family came from Canada, and you know, I went through elementary, middle, and high school in North Carolina. So I, I understood a lot of yeah. the stuff that was being talked about and said. But I was so perplexed that you never have this kind of retribution. You never have this kind of restorative justice that you do have in many other areas where you've had um, slavery, you've had civil war, you've had mass killing, you've had genocide. You know, there have been these truth and reconciliation commissions. Um, definitely, if you look uh, to the Holocaust and descendants um, there, they are still receiving payments today. I mean, in Austria, there's, it's very well known. There's, there's uh, like a slew of people who are still receiving money from the Holocaust. And it was just always baffled me that that was never done in the United States. And I'm, I'm kind of wondering, you know, why you, you say it's not going to pass. You say it's not going to go there. You know, is that just because it's symbolic? Is it about the culture? Is it about just the money and uh, saying we don't have enough money? Like, what, why does, what is that hurdle to going to the next step? Yeah, I think the hurdle is, the hurdle is that uh, politically, um, we haven't pushed for it, um, even on the Democratic end, to the extent that we should. I mean, honestly, I think no, all, every member of the Congressional Black Caucus, the only thing they should have been doing from the minute they're elected to now is pushing for reparations. Because if you look at the data, many of the districts that they represent live in, um, and that some of them represent, not all, haven't seen any marked improvement in data like income poverty rates, home ownership rates, specifically African-American people that they represent. So they don't push and fight it hard enough for that and make that a priority as they're legislating. Because look at it, I mean, a lot of members of the CBC don't discuss it enough. They're not pushing for it. Who knows if they even use their platform to lobby Joe Biden on his plan. Why is it random people like me and, and Sandy Darity, professor, very knowledgeable, analyzing the plan and saying it's not sufficient. Why aren't they saying that? Because they they can meet with Biden. So they're, they're not saying anything. So Biden and his team think that there's nothing wrong with the plan. And so that's where we are. We're, we're kind of leaderless, unfortunately, especially with respect to the CBC. And they don't push hard to my you know, from the way I feel, they don't push very hard. Oh, one thing that I, I have, uh, I know I've asked you about this in the past. Um, it, it's the, I don't know if it's a group, if it's an affiliation, if it's a movement, but the, the ADOS, American Descendants of Slavery, um, have been yes. very vociferous on this. And I know I asked your opinion uh, a couple months ago now, but I'm wondering if your opinion has changed. I know there was a, 
the, the thing on TV not long ago with Joy Reid, um, who I know is your favorite person. Yeah. Um, where she, <laughs> she was mentioning that a lot of the ADOS people are probably, you know, Russian Twitter bots and they're all fake. And, um, you know, I have followed some of the articles, some of the social media accounts, you know, these people don't seem fake to me. seems like they're, you know, writing articles and books and they have a following and, but I'm, I'm yeah. just wondering what kind of what your thoughts on that. And you say that, you know, the movement right now is leaderless. Is this kind of an avenue where there could be leadership or you don't think so? Um, I think that, you know, the American Descendants of Slavery movement is one which people are very human and very real. So, I mean, for example, there was a a guy who used to be a deacon, a minister at the church that I attended in Jacksonville, Florida, who was an honest, good guy, hardworking guy, who reached out to me on Twitter. And he's, you know, definitely down with the American Descendants of Slavery, the movement. He mm-hmm. posts looks at more data. I didn't even, I hadn't talked to him in years and he just randomly messaged me. He's not an extreme person. He's not, he's a human. He's a, actually a church going guy, 50 years old, does Sunday school, respectful guy. And so a lot of friends, friends and people I know identify with the movement and have actually posted and replied to me on social media when I just post something about the income gap that I didn't even know. You're like a fraternity brother's wife who who is just all we all went to school together. You know, they're doing their things professionally. They're not extreme people. They're just actually wanting to push for the reparations. And that's that's the thing that I understand. Like there's some people who go on tangents on Twitter. You know how that you know how it goes. Y'all yeah. they're, they're going tangents and they may be attached to the American descendants of slavery movement and they may get in arguments with random people, which I don't agree with. I don't spend my time doing that. I keep the focus on people like Professor Sandy Darity, who's been pushing for the restitution for American descendants of slavery. I think there's, that's really it. That's the main uh, point of it. That's Not the that yeah. American descendants of slavery think that they're better than anyone else that hasn't descended from slaves is mainly about the debt that isn't owed because you have to pay it to the group who was enslaved or who were descendants. That's really the main point of it. And I think that, um, I think that the point of the movement, I think is for you to take from it what you want to take from it. Mainly is that you should have a better knowledge of data. Cause since I started listening to, or reading things from Professor Sandy Darity and others, I've simply just looked at more data and more numbers on things improving and conditions that are not improving. So I think it's a good move. I think it can push the CBC and others to tighten up, get some new leadership. Really, we just need somebody who can be elected in the CBC, who actually is nothing wrong with being a moderate, but who's actually pushing for reparations. You don't have to be a far left, you don't have to be left into a socialist or whatever. You can be a progress. I mean, you can be a moderate, but you need to understand the data and say, we need to push for this. So they, we need a few, I guess you could say some new blood within the CBC. Represented by Anna Presley is doing a great job. She's a good member of the Congressional Black Caucus who's actually speaking to these issues. She was the one that called out, for the most part, the SBA guidelines with the PPP funds that didn't even allow felons, who someone who had got a felony or 
conviction in less than five years ago or on parole, they could not even apply for the funds. Wow. Do you know how many African-American business owners and others who that infected, who, who've turned their lives around, who actually have a plumbing business, a janitor's business, a computer programming business, and they couldn't even complete the application in the se- first and second rounds of funds. Yeah, I think, and so I think it was see, the same with the, the cannabis yeah. licenses for uh, farmers who wanted to grow hemp. It was like the same problem. Yeah, like if you've had any thing. conviction and, in the last five years, you can't even apply. Yeah, you know what? And that's the thing. We need more of our representatives pushing for that because that's if some of these things get resolved, maybe people stop getting so pissed off with the Democratic Party. I'm still a Democrat, but I'm getting pissed because Nancy Pelosi has some leverage. I need them to use the leverage effectively. I understand that they only control the House of Representatives. They do not control the Senate and Trump is the president. But there are certain red lines that can be inserted into legislation so that you can show us that you actually have done something to help people that are the most marginalized. So if, and I honestly think if Nancy Pelosi was negotiating if PPP round one and two, and she had said, look, we're not voting for it, the overall legislation, unless we're not budging, and Schumer said, unless it has a provision allowing felons and people five years prior to apply for these funds. We're requiring that the SBA, at the SBA, at least look at the application. If she had done that, Mitch McConnell might not have been, that probably wasn't a hill he was willing to die on. So he he probably would have been okay with that had brought the Senate majority around, and that provision could have helped a lot of people. Now you have a lot of people in Atlanta, barbers, beauticians, people who own plumbing, uh, computer programming, all types of companies that have a prior record, couldn't even apply in Atlanta. So that's, we need the Democrats to be, and Anna Presley is pushing, but she's only one person. Yeah. That known online that that was happening. I learned about it. Then a lot of people were rallying and pushing and supposedly in this past round or the next round, they will not have those stringent requirements. Yeah. Um, but, but we need collectively all the CBC members using their leverage. We need Nancy Pelosi and the moderates who need our votes to work harder and produce more. Yeah, you know that that's what I mean. That's what this that's what this all comes down to. We need tangibles, uh, y'all. We need tangibles. We need something that we can see that can improve the situation because it, it's clearly not good right now. Yeah, definitely. And you know, um, I'll, I'll be able to ask you about uh, the technique of plumbing in a couple of months once you do your training, because uh, I know you're yeah. looking into that. <laughs> um, yeah, COVID nineteen it, it it slowed my plumbing dreams down. So I was supposed supposed to start the summer courses in the first week on the first week of May, but you know that you know obviously even then we were we were in the depths of this, so that was pushed back into the fall. So I'll be starting in the fall. Well, that's good. Uh, you might be seeing Alan Holmes at your home, uh, ladies and gentlemen. You know, I, I think we could go on a lot for um, reparations and there's, you know, arguments. And I think you'd be con- uh, surprised. There's a lot of conservatives and libertarians, actually, that if the argument is framed correctly, would probably agree with it. So I don't think it's just, um, you know, having to be articulated to the left. Definitely. We've been speaking with Alan Holmes. Um, he is at O underscore Holmes on Twitter. 
You can find him there. Alan, thanks so much for taking the time. Yeah, thanks for having me. Money spills had a real revelation. Southside make you realize it's still segregation. Don't want to preach, I'm just thinking out loud. Sometimes I want to say the world and I be thinking about how my motive to lead my niggas to paradise. Imagine the world free Another fantastic interview. I know that uh, the question of reparations is always a hot topic in U.S. political discourse, something that is sometimes promised and reneged on, something that is met with some very serious criticism and opposition. Um, so I certainly appreciate um, us being able to, to have him on the show to talk about that issue. And I think most importantly, to talk about that issue in a way in which is so... Um, so calm and easily digestible for people who maybe don't really understand the history of that question and the history of what should or shouldn't be done. So I think valuable, regardless of whether you agree or not, I think just a, a valuable perspective for us to have, um, especially given everything that's going on this, this week. Yeah, and I think we, we could have gone on probably for another 30 minutes. I mean, there's a lot more questions that I have, of course. I mean, there, there's plenty, and I know we've discussed them uh, before privately, and that is, you know, if you have new immigrants, new arrivals, um, you know, is there a chance that they will receive anything if they happen to come from Nigeria or if they happen to come from Kenya? Um, everything that I've read says no. You need to be able to trace your ancestry directly to the enslaved uh, population. But then there's also the question of, you know, how you pay for this. Alan had an interesting point in saying, like, in terms of, like, the reparations and where the money come from comes from, it doesn't really matter uh, for a lot of the, the activists behind this. It's a, it doesn't matter if it's a public-private partnership, if, uh, <laughs> if Nike wants to throw a lot of money and then the government does too. And I think that's a big thing to work out. I think the first intellectual hurdle is just getting people to accept this and to accept that it's something to be done. And then my, my other big question that, you know, I think if we were able to get Alan back on the show is, you know, if we have this huge reparations plan, you know, what about the systemic things that we need to change? Or is that just erased? Mm -hmm. Is it a clean slate? What yeah. do we do from then on? Uh, I think there's yeah. a lot of questions there. But, yeah, great, great having him on, great having Rupert on. I think it was a pretty action-packed show. Yeah, yeah, great show. Um, a, a great show. I know that uh, it's it's been a tough week, and so I think we've we've certainly um, acknowledged the the tough week that everybody has had, and hopefully we've we've dug into some of these questions and issues in a way that's respectful and uh, and meaningful and entertaining for our audience. And so please feel free to give us feedback on those. And uh, again, we appreciate you listening and. Thank you for, for tuning in for another week. And you can continue to subscribe to our podcast version, ConsumerChoiceRadio.com. You've been listening to our program here on the Big Talker 106.7 FM in the morning, WFBT, Saturdays at 10. Thanks so much, everyone, and we'll talk to you next week.